Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Brian Roche and Jason Paysor. Brian is the Director of Safety Pharmacology at the Charles River Laboratories. Jason is a Senior Scientist at Galaxo Smith Klein. They're here to speak about how to integrate hemodynamic, respiratory, and neurological measurements to study multiple biological systems simultaneously while benefiting from more efficient data collection and workflow in the laboratory. Let's jump in. First question, Brian. Can you please clarify again how the animal is restrained in the chamber using the alley restraint? And maybe just, I think our audience is looking for any tips or tricks that you can share that made this process as smooth as it can be when handling the animal and making sure that everybody can, everything connects together just right. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a really good question because, you know, the neck clip, you're, you're trying to combine two things, let alone adding a rat to the mix. So you've got the restraint sled and the neck clip that need to fit into that slot. Oh, nice, nice picture. So you need that blue clip to slip into that that slot, and you'll find that with no rat, the the alignment can be off in the sense that it will not fit down all the way to allow the nose seal to fit over the top of it. The nose seal is what holds that in place. So familiarity with that before you even get the rat um, on the restraint sled, and then once the rat is in there, are really working the right size clip to hold in there because again as I mentioned in the presentation if if you get any negative feedback to the rat cooperation as far as extending through the tube tends to slow down we found that removing the rat from the tube and starting over was was actually easier than trying to wait or anticipate that the rat would extend its neck through so I think it's important to make sure the neck clip is positioned correctly so that, that not only is the rat restrained but you can get the nose seal over the top of it very good Okay, that's great. Next question we had come in ahead of our meeting, and we just want to take an opportunity to ask if you guys could clarify how dual pressure implants are, can be used to collect and derive respiratory endpoints. So we've also gone ahead and just prepared some graphs here. And Jason, I asked maybe that, that you lead the charge on answering this question. Sure. So for the study that I ran, it was it's it, the one pressure catheter is cardiovascular. It's it's the other pressure catheter we, we put under the cirrhosis layer of the esophagus and we advance it into the thorax. So once it's in the thorax, it's able to detect changes in pressure in the thorax because as as the you know you get these changes in pressure that drive patient. And then from these pressure graphs, we're also able to to detect uh, respiratory rate using our software. Now. Uh, with my study, because it's not in an enclosed environment, I, uh, there's no pneumatech, there's no transducer, I was not able to detect flow, I was not able to detect resistance compliance, um, but again, it's a very flexible model where you can put it into a restrained um, head-out plethysmography chamber or the ally uh, chamber or even a, a full-body Buxco chamber, let's say, and then you could collect all this data with the flow, resistance compliance, things like that. Okay. And Andy, I'd just like to add that the figures that you have up are from the assessments you did in the LA restraint. And, you know, in that top left channel one respiratory flow, so that's the signal you're collecting with, with your respiratory component through the pneumatac. That second channel just below it, the PCRP, that's your pressure from, from the exact same surgery that, that Jason just described. You know, and then obviously we've got ECG and blood pressure, arterial blood pressure on that, that graph below. The right-hand figure that is the derived signal on the top of tidal volume. So it's using 
both flow on the left, tidal volume on the right, with the pressure that allows the system to calculate the resistance and compliance. But you can clearly see very nice respiratory signals. And again, the difference being here's a restrained animal versus Jason's example where he would be using the, the channel 2 PCRP channel for collection of interpleural pressure. This one here, yeah. Awesome. Very good. No, thanks for that, that clarification. That's great. Um, Okay, next question. Our audience is looking for suggestions how they, how they might approach data analysis of respiratory endpoints differently than CV endpoints. For this one, maybe I'll ask Mike, can you lead the charge on this answer and perhaps Brian and Jason, and you could follow up and share you know, your strategies or what you did in the studies that you shared today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Andy. You know, as was well presented today, combination studies are, are gaining popularity for you know a variety of reasons. And some of these were presented uh, today by both Dr. Roche and Jason. Uh, the thing to keep in mind, however, is that when combining respiratory applications like these two cardiovascular and respiratory endpoints, it is important to understand that these, the analysis of these two signal types might have to be treated a little bit differently from one another. You know, cardi cardiovascular signals, for example, are, are in general very stable and very clean. Respiratory signals, on the other hand, regardless if they're obtained from a plethysmograph, a telemetry implant, or some other type of hardware approach, can appear very different. For example, mo motion artifact, free roaming approaches, even animal grooming and sniffing and exploring can have some type of impact on the quality of a signal. So, you know, the analysis approach from a cardiovascular to a respiratory, you know, version when looking at combination studies may have to vary. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand that when you're combining these two technologies or these two types of signals, they can't necessarily be treated or analyzed in the same fashion. I suspect that both uh, Dr. Roche and Jason have some insight on how they did that with both of their combination studies, and perhaps they can give a little bit more information on some of their best practices that they've been able to uncover. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Well, Brian, why don't you uh, go first? Yeah, sure. For for the study that we conducted here with the allay restraint, you know, with the acclimation, we were actually looking for small changes over short periods of time, right? We were acclimating from 15 minutes out through to five hours. So we bend the data in smaller bins at the, the initial onset and then bend them out further into hourly averages later on in the data. So again, you're, you're, you're combining hundreds and hundreds of beats to allow you to get that mean signal with an hourly averages versus the smaller bin. So that should be considered to Mike's point with how accurate the system is marking the data if you have a lot of noise and you're only looking for a five minute average. I would also say that in, in freely moving, when you do have the sniffing and the artifacts that go on, it's very difficult for that system to determine peaks and valleys. It will, you know, start counting sniffing and not true respiratory cycle. So those things need to be considered when you're analyzing the data. I would just say one last point on the studies that we ran where we had flow and pressure is understanding, you know, the system is syncing those two up so that they can, in the integrated format through analysis, get the resistance and compliance. So again, a key point when you have that is not only a nice clean signal, but also the syncing of the two signals together. Very good. Jason, how about you? We did something very similar in that when we collected our respiratory and cardiovascular data, we, we collected minute means. So when you get uh, an animal that's uh, holding the breath in particular, it really drastically affects your data. So when you're looking at a minute and you have huge pressure, uh, anything over 20, we know that's just it's not physiologically accurate. So we're, we're able to just take out that one minute out of out of the hour. And then, and then afterwards, once once we review our data and everything looks good, then then we'll average it into an hour. And then when you get that hourly averages, it looks a lot better than 
than you would think. Although, again, when you looking when looking through my data, cardiovascular looks very tight, not much standard error. And then when you look at the respiratory, it's not as tight, still looks good, but there's certainly more variability. And that's just because it's it's very difficult data to work with using filters and and kind of mins and maxes, knowing what's physiologically possible and what's not is is important. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great, great comprehensive answer from our our panel. That's great, guys. Okay, actually, while I have you, Jason, a question's come in from Cindy. Uh, She'd like to know... Just, you know, you shared your, the conclusions and what you guys brought out of that study. At this point, are you going to try another negative control besides chlorpromazine or fentanyl? It's something that's in the works. We think we definitely want to shift our dosing time, and we're looking into using a, a potentially different compound. The other thing that actually was brought up at Safety Pharmacology Society was somebody mentioned this the strain of rat that we use is not necessarily... Um, a very good strain to look at respiratory parameters, and that that's also something we might have to consider looking at a different strain, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. I guess, well, this one was directed at Brian, but perhaps we could look at it from both presenters. They'd like to get your thoughts on reproducing this type of experimentation in the mouse model, I guess, first. Is this possible for whole-body plasmatography uh, and then with the devices that you guys used in these studies? So maybe, Brian, have you done this in mouse? Is it possible? Mike, if there's a point for you to chime in on product here on this question, too, feel free after the guys have shared what they've done. Sure, I, I have done this in mice. It is possible when, if we're talking about respiratory, I've not done combined respiratory with endopleural pressure. Okay. But from respiratory standpoint, yes, very nice signals. Again, things are just reduced down like you would think based on size, based on dead space and that sort of thing. But most respiratory data is, is quite common. Okay. Jason, yeah, the only thing you? that I would add. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Mike. go ahead, Jason. Please, please, Jason, go ahead. I do believe... DSI has come out with a dual pressure mouse model. It's it's not the same mm-hmm. as have they? No, you know I'm not even sure if they have have a dual pressure mouse model. You can't do it in in the rodent in the rat model. It's it's just too big of an implant. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mike, what were what was? Uh... And that was exactly what uh, Jason had just suggested that you know the, the the approaches, the models of being able to do an interpleural pressure telemetry surgery for a mouse is feasible, but to be able to do a combination of a dual pressure for a for a mouse application with a smaller device is currently not available. Okay, very good, good to know, Jason. Uh, can you just maybe recap at a high level your surgical procedure? I'm going to go back to the graph that you had so that you can sure. reference it. Just give me a moment to do so. So basically, it's a it's an abdominal incision first from the xiphoid or just near the xiphoid process down. First, I would isolate the abdominal aorta. I would locate where the renal bifurcation is as well as the femoral bifurcation. And my catheter has to go between these two bifurcations. I would clean off the artery. I would get two isolation points. Um, put sutures through those isolation points, prep my catheter, we would we would occlude the artery, I'd poke a hole in the in the in the artery. I I generally use a 22 gauge needle and I bend it. Once I have a hole in the artery, I I put the catheter in, I advance it up to the upper occlusion point. My colleague would drop the suture so I could advance my catheter past that point. He'll then reocclude it. So the suture is now keeping that catheter in place. I'll dry off the artery, I'll glue it down, allow 12 to 14 seconds for that glue to dry. Uh, then we'll 
drop our sutures, we get blood flow again, perfusion. If the if the occlusion takes too long, uh, that's that's usually where you have a problem with the surgery, where you get failure. If if you're having trouble getting the catheter uh, advanced, or if you're if you're, sometimes you're not in in the lumen of the vessel, sometimes you end up in intermuscular, then you end up with lameness in the legs, and that's when you'd have to euthanize. Once that's done, I would. Um, go up to, towards the stomach, we would actually throw a suture in the, in the top portion of the stomach and using a hemostats, just kind of drag it down. And this really makes the esophagus very prominent. From there, again, I'll use a 22-gauge needle to, to poke a hole in, in, into the cirrhosal layer of the esophagus. I'll advance the catheter up into the thoracic cavity. I'll, from there, I'll use a suture to actually tie it um, into the musculature of the, of the esophagus to keep that catheter in place. We'll take all our sutures out. Everything looks good here. At that point, I would prep my biopotential leads for ECG. The negative lead I would put under these on the dorsal side of the xiphoid process, and that allows for nice shielding. So we're going to get a nice, good, good-sized P wave. From there, I would tunnel up uh, under the skin up to the neck area of the rodent. I'll close everything up. I make sure I have, you know, I put saline in there, make sure things are fluid. We don't get any adhesion. And then once everything's closed up, I'll, I'll advance the positive electrode under the sternum. There's a space under the sternum you can get under. And that allows for a really nice lead to configuration ECG. Suture that up, and the rodent's done. Excellent. I that I, I'm sure it does. Actually, that was, it's, at least sounds to me like that was a very detailed and, and thorough answer. So our, our audience will be happy. And I was going to say, this, it's a good thing we're recording this. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Another question. Um, is there any way to collect blood? And I would say, let's parse this out into Brian and your setup and then Jason and yours. Brian, in, in your experiments, you know, are there times in which you can do blood draws from the subjects and how would you go about doing that? Or have you done that? Yeah. And again, with the anesthet, I mean, sorry, the restrained model, it's very easy. So there's, there's a catheter port that we placed in prior to study start. And that externalization of that catheter would be extended through, in my experience, prior to the LA restraint technology, through a port, through a vent in the, the actual restraint device to externalize it. And that gives you free access to keep it locked and then collect samples as needed based on the dosing and the post-dosing intervals. Okay, great. Jason, how about you? Yeah, absolutely. If it's a single bleed, you can certainly use tail vein, retroorbital bleed, if that's what you, you guys use. If you're looking for more of a chronic bleeding, it's it's really hard to recommend it when you're collecting 24-hour cardiovascular data because every time you disrupt the animal, you're going to get changes in heart rate and blood pressure and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff. If, if you're looking for more of a chronic sampling, I would, I would highly recommend you can absolutely implant um, a catheter, exteriorize it, put it in a harness, and then, then that way the rat is still unrestrained, it's in a harness, and then you can sample blood that way. Okay. Great, great. All right, well, I'm going to say, um, let's ask one more question here. This one's from Matt, and it's going back to the subject of thoracic compression as a limitation with the standard head-out uh, technology and how the alley restraint is different. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's looking maybe for your guys, or Brian specifically, your your thoughts on is this uh, a better way to go about it in your opinion? Yeah, so I really appreciate the question because it gets me to a point that I don't think we really discussed, which I, I did discuss how the restraint works with the neck clip behind the animal's neck, behind the ears, um, or X to expand and contract. If you think about the nose only or even the head out, 
you know, you need that plunger system to push the animal forward in the nose only in order to get respiratory signal, you actually would need to condense the rat enough that the rat's shoulders and back of its neck actually form the seal to collect the respiratory data. In this setup, you've got the nose seal around the animal's mouth, so the, the back half of that portion of that animal is freely moving, meaning um, as if it would be in its home cage. So I think we found nicely in the, in the data set based on head out that respiratory function was more efficient in the sense that rate was lower, tidal volume was higher for the same time interval under the same conditions. Perfect. Okay. And Mike, is there anything to add here from you? Yeah, Andy, the only thing I would add there is, you know, some of the study approaches that researchers have is longitudinal in, in nature. So reproducibility of placing an animal in a restraining device of any kind is very critical. So not only being able to get a proper seal to get respiratory endpoints altogether or a proper seal for inhalation exposure studies, the ability for a technician to be able to repeatedly place an animal in and out of a, a chamber of any design consistently adds adds amount of value to it because if there's technician error or inconsistencies on how much you might compress, for example, the rear end of an animal using a plunger style approach, uh, you might get differences in values from one session to the next, all of the things being equal. So the, the, the applying of an LA restraint to where we no longer put that pressure by compromising the thorax from the rear end and, and consistently maintaining a restraint from a neck clip behind the ears and in front of the shoulder blades allows us to minimize some of that impact of potential air just based on a procedural method more so than from a potential drug effect. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.